The following episode contains depictions of hospital conditions that may be disturbing for some listeners. Viewer discretion is advised. Also, like the last episode, numerous images are described, which you can view at deadideas.net. All right, everybody, enjoy. Today's dead idea, hysteria, the medical diagnosis that pretty much could be used to explain away anything that men didn't like about women's sexuality. And then, of course, there were also a whole bunch of serious mental disturbances, too, that some people experienced, but because they were women, they got it labeled as hysteria. We're going to be hearing a lot more about that today. And this is actually part two of our hysteria series, so check out part one. But we're going to be hearing a lot about the perspective of the patients in 19th century France. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. The music we just heard was composed by my lovely wife, Rachel Westhoff, who hypnotizes me with her beautiful silver wolf eyes and does God knows what while I'm under. Well, well. <laughs> I'm E.T. Newberg, but you can call me Brandon. With me once again are my co-hosts for the day, Nick. So when Rachel does this hypnotizing, do you ever see phantom snakes? <laughs> Not yet. Uh, so that's Nick and Anna. Missing one uterus. Answers to the name of Fluffy. <laughs> a beast are you putting a beast. Are you putting up <laughs> posters in the park of your uterus? Yeah, you know, just if, in case. If found, please return to owner. Please wash off and actually, no, just keep it. <laughs> your wandering uterus. Bad Fluffy. Bad. <laughs> Here, I'm going to just rhythmically punch it until it resets. There, jam it. I would check all the local coffee shops. It's probably a pretty hip uterus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ooh, insufferably hip uterus. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, okay, well, guys, it's time to do our fake plug, which we like to do every series. Ooh. We like to do a uh, fake plug for a local craft brew. And fake plug means we don't get any money for this. We just plug it because we like it. And uh, this time, usually it's something we're drinking at the moment, but actually we're going to a brew pub right after recording today. We're going to Barley John's brewery in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. New Brighton, I think, technically. Is it New Brighton? Okay, well, it's suburb. Yeah, all right. So I think I'm going to get the Mel's Cream Ale. That sounds pretty good. I'm going to get me some Wild Brunette because that was delicious. Which has? Uh, Wild rice and little overtones of vanilla. Minnesota Wild Rice. I've had that one before. It was interesting. You can that one. It's pretty good. It's interesting. And I'm still deciding between the um, Mild Bitter... Uh-huh. I don't remember the exact name of it, or the Belgian Golden Strong Ale. Okay. Well, we'll let you know, maybe on Facebook or something, how that turns out. So, All right, so on to the topic for today. We are talking about hysteria. And remember that we're talking about the medical diagnosis, not mass hysteria or things being extra funny. Like, that's hysterical, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although, if you think about it... <laughs> Okay, that's the fakest laugh I've ever heard. All right, hold on. Let me punch your dudes. Oh, now he's gone all Snake! Rigid. A snake! Whoa, okay. it's a snake! If, if none of that makes any sense, go back and listen to our previous episode on this. Part one. All right, uh, so we're talking about the medical condition that was for literally thousands of years attributed to a uterus wandering around your body causing harm. But uh, actually, by the 19th century, doctors didn't really think anymore that it was literally caused by a wandering uterus. Just a uh, quick interruption. Technically, I think what you punched was my brovary. Uh, <laughs> okay. Mm. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, in the 19th century, they were trying to find out, well, what exactly does cause it? So we're going to 1893, Belle Epoque period of France. Um, by this time, doctors were, like I said, like they didn't think it was the uterus, but they did still believe in hysteria as a serious medical condition. And in fact, they thought it had reached epidemic proportions. We heard estimates ranging between 25 and 75 percent of the female population last time. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I don't know. And one doctor in particular, Jean-Martin Charcot, and I think... I think I, there's a movie about um, him and one of his patients called Augustine, a French-made movie, and hmm. I think they pronounced his name more like Chaco, something like that. But uh, 
think Charcot is pretty okay for American. Pretty, yeah. Uh, Anglicized. In order to not sound pretentious, I'm just going to continue to say Charcot. I'm going to call him Charcot. <laughs> yeah, there's a T at the end. Yeah, if I'm okay. really going to be pedantic, it should be Martin, not Martine. But... Mm. So anyway, um, one doctor in particular, Jean-Martin Charcot, began to study it deeply, and we're going to get a peek at the lives of some of the women at Charcot's hospital who end up diagnosed with hysteria, as it was understood at the time. Now, I usually think of the second episode in our series as kind of a playtime, where we get to kind of like kick back and relax, but this is, it doesn't really feel, it feels uncomfortable thinking of this as playtime, because this is the one where it kind of gives me, has given me kind of chills while I was doing the research, some of the things that we'll get into today. So just warning ya, uh, everybody, the experiments and treatments these women were subjected to, I don't know, it was, you, you know what they say about like a train wreck, where like mm. you... You, it's awful, but you can't look away. <laughs> kinda... And then, then you get that, that symptom of his spine. Oh, yeah, the train spine. Oh, yeah, the railway yeah. spine railway that spine. we talked about last time. Yeah, you get trauma from it. So we're having whiplash from an episode of Dildo Jokes to an episode of oh, God. Horror Show, basically. Yes. Yeah, yeah, this one's not going to be all reanimated corpses, werewolves, and <laughs> yeah. shit stink. Uh, yes, reference back to many of our previous episodes. Uh, extra bonus fan points if you know e what each one of those is from. Anyway, um, we should also note that although we're trying to get as close as possible to the patients themselves, unfortunately, almost everything that we get is filtered through the doctors. So it's totally through that male lens. And um, we, I don't know, it's just kind of how it is, with very rare exceptions. Um, so it's kind of frustratingly leaving us on the outside, but we'll do our best to imagine the perspective that the patients had. And most of the stuff today is coming from a book called Medical Muses by Asti Hustvet. Um, and it's got way more in there than we can possibly talk about today, so definitely check that out. All right, so Asti Hustvet describes the situation of hysteria at this time and place. She says, hysteria was at least partly an illness of being a woman in an era that strictly limited female roles. It must be understood as a response to stifling social demands and expectations aptly expressed in paralysis, deafness, muteness, and a sense of being strangled. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Blanche, Augustine, and Genevieve, which are the three main patients that we're going to focus on today, exhibited symptoms that physically illustrated their actual social conditions. So Augustine, that's the movie you think? Mm -hmm. oh, it's about yeah. that patient, yeah. So exhibited symptoms that physically illustrated their actual social conditions. And she goes on to say that um, although basically she went into this research for this book, Guns A-Blazing, ready to just hate Charcot, she ended up being kind of developing a respect for him because even though, you know, all the caveats that we've already got about the whole patriarchal nature of it, he was trying to actually help them, in a way. Um, and she says, Despite my intention, the more I read, the more I found myself admiring Charcot's brilliance. Instead of a clear-cut world of exploited women and exploiting men, I entered something far more nuanced. Blanche, Augustine, and Genevieve were undeniably victimized, both inside and outside the hospital. That said, they also participated in a hospital culture that was in many ways less oppressive than the world beyond it. The Salpêtrière, which was his hospital, uh, provided a language, the language of hysteria, that allowed them to articulate their distress. Blanche, Augustine, and Genevieve mastered its vocabulary and were rewarded. Did it say, um, or are we going to find out who the lady that in this theoretical, um, in the previous episode, the one who was being um, paraded with the symptoms of hysteria, would it have been any of these ladies? Or mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh! Yeah. Okay. Um, in, fin in fact, Blanche, I forget her exact title, um, she was, we'll get to it when we talk about Blanche. She was okay. like the, the star of the show. Wow. And then Augustine, later also, and there was a lot of jealous rivalry between them too. Ooh. Yes. Believe it or not. Oh. Okay, so today we're going specifically to the Paris hospital called the Salpêtrière. I think it's actually some, maybe like Salpêtrière, something like that. Yeah, that was a pretty okay. good accent. Okay. At one time, it was a gunpowder factory, like saltpeter. I was wondering, like saltpeter. Yeah, that's where it came like from. Yeah, yeah. 
and now at this time in 1893 it's a combination prison for prostitutes and mental ward for women and it houses roughly 5,000 to 8,000 women so it's not wow. a small so, hospital yeah yeah and about 17.8 percent of those are diagnosed with hysteria uh, note that the mental ward had both an insane ward and a ward for the non-insane, and the hysterics were in the non-insane part of it. Hmm. Like we said last time, Charcot considered it more like a disorder than full-on insanity. Right, and we're talking about close to a thousand people then, seventeen percent of somewhere between mm -hmm. five and eight thousand. Yeah, something hey. something like that. Yeah, um, but there was always the threat of being sent to the insane ward if you were acting up. So, and that happened to some hmm. of these patients. Also, curiously, all the talk last time that we talked about with manually stimulating women to paroxysm, as the doctors called it, uh, as a form of treatment, I found no reference to this practice at all at the Salpetriere. Charcot didn't seem to think of that as like the appropriate practice, although I think it, I got the impression that it still definitely was going on at this time in the world, but not among these medical doctors. Well, I'm assuming that, okay, no, not going there. Go, <laughs> go there, oh please, by all <laughs> means, go there. <laughs> so the hospital is run by, as we said, uh, the world's leading neurologist, Dr. Jean-Martin Charcot, where he studies experiments on and displays in public lectures, hysterical patients. So first we have to talk about this Charcot in order to set the scene, and then we're going to take on the roles of three of his most celebrated Patients. Yay? Yeah. Yay? Yeah. 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 Okay, so first, Charcot. So this is a picture of Dr. Charcot. Just looking at it, who does this remind you of? Um, I'm getting a little Napoleon there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not just because his hand is tucked into his uh, side. Wow. His coat pocket. Yeah. Also, the angle of his face is really strange. Yeah, his head looks flat. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God, he looks like Phil Collins. He looks like a young Phil Collins. He does. <laughs> oh, he seems to have an invisible touch, yeah. So he was actually... <laughs> oh, man. Uh, so he was actually called the Napoleon of Neuroses. Wait, seriously? Seriously. Uh -huh. And then he would play it up with photos like these right. where he tucks his hand into his the, pocket. Yeah. yeah. Like into um, yeah. Oh Lord. And he was like seriously respected at the time. Like he was a luminary. He was basically like a superhero of of the medical community at the time, or supervillain. I don't know quite which to say, but he was like Bruce Wayne with powers of Doctor Strange or something. Because <laughs> he, because he like had the 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 money and the public sway of like a Bruce Wayne and the hypnotic power of like Dr. Strange yeah. or somebody. <laughs> yeah. And he'd be like to exert total control over these hysterical patients um, that he had. Um, and he would demonstrate this on a weekly basis in his public Tuesday lectures. And we encountered one of those lectures in the last episode. Um, and these lectures were so popular that a journalist half joked that they caused traffic jams in Paris. He also holds weekly dinner parties at his home where anybody who's anybody comes and uh he has a pet monkey named rosalie what huh? <laughs> why i don't know he just does so <laughs> pet monkey. yeah let's make dinner fun also going along with the superhero theme he has an arch nemesis an arch nemesis named leon daudet or daudet mm -hmm. yeah who is an author um, and like superhero, like Superman and and Lex Luthor or something, they all they were childhood best friends, but oh. became bitter rivals. And they have this crazy <laughs> backstory of like I think so many things. Okay, so Daudet failed his medical exam and blamed Charcot for it somehow. Oh, so um, to read Richard's uh, <laughs> Von Doom. Thing. He accused Charcot of having a vendetta against him for jilting his daughter in favor of marrying the granddaughter of an, the author Victor Hugo. The one who okay. wrote Hunchback of Notre right. Dame. Mm -hmm. And when they divorced, she married Charcot's son, which further fanned the flames. Um, and finally, Charcot treated Daudet's father for syphilis, but failed to cure him. And the guy died slowly and painfully. And Daudet always kind of blamed him for that, too. So, so it was quite a vendetta. So Victor Hugo's granddaughter was first married to Daudet and then divorced to married Charcot's son? E yes. Okay. If I heard that right, yeah. That is so weird. It's like, hey, we grew up together with best buds. You want to marry my daughter? I know. That's hosed up. <laughs> well, another time. Another t another time, another place. No. 
And Daudet never missed an, a chance to eviscerate Charcot in the press. And he wrote even a medical novel called Les Morticots. Yeah, Les Morticots, probably. Okay. Um, miraculous. Which, which is a thinly veiled attack on Charcot's hospital. Apparently medical novels were all the rage at the time. Ooh. So it's like the Victorian version of medical cell of all the soaps and like yeah. ER and general hospital? No, it was more like... It was it was more it was more like a Skinamax movie of, that would be entitled like Nymphomaniac or something. Okay. So they would choose like a diagnosis and then like s- describe the salty life of the person who has it. Yeah. So. <laughs> My name is Irina, and I steal from plague wards, and I'm totally banging everybody on the ward, and it smells bad. Yeah. Um, and also, this is why French novels had that reputation I mentioned in the last episode. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Also, like a superhero, Charcot had sidekicks, um, <laughs> which were his medical students, one of which for a short time was Freud. Mm-hmm. Um, also, some other people that became of note later, um, such as Tourette. No way. Tourette syndrome. Oh, syndrome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Binet, the creator of the Stanford Binet test. Do you guys know what that is? Uh, no. no. It's the IQ test. Oh, ah, okay. Yes. yes, so he created that. Um, less famous today is a guy named Bourneville, but he discovered something called Bourneville's syndrome, or tu- tuberous sclerosis, who was also an outspoken critic of the church, and that'll come up later when we talk about Genevieve. And this guy apparently was not a very attractive man, this Bourneville. Um, Daudet, the, the Lex Luthor of this story, um, describes him as an ugly Papuan idol covered in hair. <laughs> well. <laughs> yeah. But it it seems that Bourneville actually had a bit more of a humanitarian heart and seemed to actually care for the well-being of the patients, especially Augustine, which is another one that we might get to. Okay. Okay. So what are we going to do here? Normally we do the role play or choice in the first episode, which we did last time, but now we're kind of going to do that again this time. Mm. So I'm going to offer each of us uh, to choose uh, one of the three famous patients. And actually a little bit of a false choice because I'm going to take Augustine and do that last simply because I don't know how long all of this is going to run. And Augustine, I feel like the other two are less covered in the in the media and other things that you can get. Augustine is like highly celebrated and there's even this amazing, a really good um, French movie from 2013, I think, called Augustine mm-hmm. um, that you should definitely watch. And it shows Charcot's practices and all kinds of interesting stuff. So I'll take Augustine and we may or may not get to her. The other two are Blanche, the Queen of Hysterics, that's what their title was, the Queen mm-hmm. of Hysterics, or Genevieve, a Midnight Lover and Saint Hysteric. Which is the uh, second album that I'm releasing under Testeria. <laughs> right. Okay. No, it sounds like it's in a different genre to me. But... <laughs> well, look, we're getting experimental. Yeah, that's the prog rock band? Mm-hmm. Hysteria. Okay. Or Testeria. 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 Yeah. Right. All right. So who wants to be Blanche and who would like to be Genevieve? I think you're a Midnight Lover and Saint Hysteric. Well, it's true. And I can't deny it. But I am the Queen of Hysterics, so... You're okay. like being of hysterics, darling. Oh. Aww. That's so sweet. <laughs> All right, well, I'm Blanche then. All right, okay, so Anna's going to be Blanche. All right, and then Nick, you'll be Genevieve. Okay, so Blanche. Okay, so here is a picture of Blanche. Mm. How does she look? German. Oh, she does kind of <laughs> look really German, doesn't she? <laughs> a bit. She was French, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely I can see it. Yeah, she's um she's well dressed. I'll give her that. Um, I mean, she looks a little smug or possibly crazed. I like mm. her earrings. <laughs> uh, she's doesn't know what to do with her hair, but I sympathize with that too. <laughs> kind of has that unfortunate uh, malformed, pudgy lantern jaw type thing, which I also have. So hey, yeah. Interestingly, okay. she was renowned as being very attractive at the time. Well, huh. different. Okay, well, yeah. Just standards like now. have changed a little. Yeah, standards yeah. have changed. Yeah. Okay, so as Blanche, uh, your physical appearance is recorded as, um, and it's, the quote here starts off as W. That's often how they refer to you in the okay. medical records. Hmm. Blanche, okay. Blanche Whitman is her full name. Ah, so okay. W. Wait, yeah. Whitman? Which also sounds German, doesn't it? it or American. Or, Ameri- or English. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Not French. Well, I don't know. Yeah. Okay, so 
W is tall, five foot three. Hell yes! <laughs> so it's interesting that five foot three is tall. I know. Tall. I better believe it. And corpulent, 154 pounds. Okay, I take a j- objection to that one. <laughs> <laughs> she is blonde and has a lymphatic complexion. I'm not really sure what that means. Hmm. Her skin is white and freckled. Her breasts are very large. How scientific is this, that? That was written in the medical record yeah. when she entered the hospital. Huge! Anyway. <laughs> Vast tracts of land. <laughs> um, poitrine, I think, was the, the French word for it that was <laughs> recorded <laughs> by a journalist. Of having an ample poitrine. Oh, yeah. oh. Um, also, there is a scar on the upper outside part of her left thigh. Doesn't seem strictly relevant, but they are recording anything and everything. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, Blanche, your childhood. All of these patients had just really awful childhoods. Okay, so you were born in 1859 to an unemployed carpenter and a laundress, and you begin suffering convulsions and partial paralysis at two years old. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. Yeah. So, starts young. Numerous other ailments afflict you as well, including chillblains which apparently are painful sores caused by exposure. Chillblains. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, five or eight of your siblings die. Hmm. Um, four from convulsions and one from suspected epilepsy. And, and those are different things? Uh, I guess so. Hmm. Apparently. And this is a high child mortality rate even for the times. Yeah. Um, which at the time the mortality rate was like 20%, which is insanely high already, but even this is more than that. Yeah. Your mother frequently suffers from attacks of nerves, hmm, quote unquote, and your father, a violent man, attempts to throw you out a window at one point. Okay. Uh huh. All right, one of those. Yeah. He eventually goes completely mad and ends up in an asylum himself. So she's already hmm. got an interesting family history in terms of. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 You can see how she can end up pretty messed up, easily. So you yourself are a difficult and willful child, prone to fits of rage and rolling on the floor, kicking and screaming. Okay, but in my defense. (laughs) Don't be so willful here. (laughs) You are rarely allowed in school due to your behavior, so you miss a lot of your education, too. Student of the world, baby. At the age of 12, you go to work for a furrier. Uh, Mission must work, yeah, make fur, fur hats, yeah? Yeah. Okay. Um, who makes unwanted sexual advances. On a 12-year-old. Yep. Great. Yeah. Uh, You start having tremors and dropping things, and when he tries to beat you, you go back to your mother to work as a laundress instead. Um, But she soon dies of an upper respiratory infection, and you end up with the furrier again. Oh, God. Yes. Um, He eventually coaxes you into bed, and for eight months you have regular relations, often experiencing convulsions after or even during. Yeah. Well, after he starts coming on to you and you're 12 and then beats you. Yeah. You can imagine having a little bit of a trauma that would come out that way. Finally, you you just get fed up and run away, and you get work as a fille de service, which means ward girl, Mm -hmm. in a hospital. Um, a job that has some of the lowest pay and worst working conditions of the era. So like basically, being a home now. <laughs> yeah. So um, basically, a ward girl at a hospital, you help out at the hospital, and often the positions are filled by the patients themselves who are huh. fit to work. Really? Yep. Huh. And eventually, this brings you to the Salpetriere, Charcot's Hospital, where you become both the ward girl and a patient. The year when you enter is 1877, and you're 18 years old at this point. It's already been a very interesting life. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, um, Charcot brings you in, they, you know, record your symptoms, work with you for a while, and then he starts to treat you. He, Charcot, uh, hypnotizes you frequently, both for study and for demonstration at lectures, like we saw last time, Mm -hmm. and you get a reputation. You start to become known as the queen of hysterics because you perfectly embody the symptoms described by Charcot. And how is my core strength abdominally? Pretty damn good, probably. You probably did that planking maneuver. Hell yeah. Yeah. But interestingly, when you first arrive, you're a mess of all kinds of chaotic symptoms that don't fit his stages. 
Hmm. Hmm. Suspicious. Yes. Yes. Lycanthropy is not one of them. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's only after some time that you become the perfect exemplar of his theory. And, oh, here's that special term I couldn't remember last time. Um, This is now generally recognized as a case of iatrogenic illness. Oh, sure. Or uh, one created as a result of the interaction between doctor and patient. Right. Yeah. So basically he kind of maybe even subconsciously suggests to you what he wants and you kind of, yeah. Interesting. Happens. So methodology is key. All right. So. Quick question about that. Yeah, go ahead. With the atrogenic illness, when those symptoms started exhibiting, did that sort of cut down on the other symptoms that didn't fit the diagnosis so well? Yeah. It very well could have been. Because in that case, it's a weird combination of doctor creates these symptoms, but doing that is a genuine form of therapy for the others yeah, if they the go, away go away. And, hmm. Interesting. Uh, I didn't read anything that would have shed any light on that, but that is very interesting. Yeah. I bet it was the case yeah. for a lot of And it of kind them. of sounds like it. Yeah. Congratulations on your accidental therapy. Okay, next picture for you guys to look at. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. do you see here? Um, okay, it's a lady, but it's also a Rorschach test. Uh, she's, it's a picture, it's a line drawing of a woman, and, uh, it's got these little black zones on her little body. Little numbered blotches that are zones in and the caption. two of them right. look like ovaries. They're symmetrical, so there's one on each side. It's, um, viewing her from the front. Yes, so Charcot's, Charcot calls these your hysterogenic zones. Right, hmm. so there's ovaries, there's zones under the breasts, and zones over the breasts. Uh-huh. And a bunch of little abdominal areas too. Yeah. Well, and just literally the French. It's sous mammaire and sur mammaire. It's over and under the mammaries. Mm. Yeah. So he uses these as basically on-off switches hmm. for bringing out hysterical symptoms, quote unquote. And you become famous for being very responsive for your and in, in, in your hysterogenic zones. Yeah. As weird as that may be, they're not very sensitive when you first arrive. They come to be so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This gives rise to a certain method of treatment. Here's the next photo. Oh, okay. I don't like this. I don't want to talk about this. What the... What is that? (laughs) What is that? That's a girdle? It looks like it's unpleasantly interior. Is that a compression? Oh, my God. What is that? Okay. All right. Um, It looks like a girdle, maybe? I don't know. It is. It's kind of like a girdle. And you can see this being used in the movie Augustine that I mentioned, too. Oh, good. They demonstrated it. It's an ovarian compressor. I okay. don't like Yeah. This. So it like has this kind of crank tool that you turn it, and it gradually kind of screws down deeper, and it presses harder and harder on your ovaries. Oh. And he uses it when you have signs that an attack is coming on, and then when he does and it... And that turns it off. Yes. Because it applies constant right. pressure. So it's an ovarian thunder shirt. Okay. Thunder shirt? What is a thunder shirt? You know how dogs shirt? are afraid of, of, of storms and the sound uh, yeah, of thunder? Yeah. It's this compression garment you put on a dog and it makes it feel like they're being hugged. And yeah, feel it's secure. a really oh. hard pressing on the ribs okay. hug sweater for a dog to make them not afraid of thunderstorms. Oh. Or less afraid. Or yeah. at least like they're being actively concerned. Well, that humanizes it. Now I don't mind the ovarian compressor so much. Well, I don't think I would miss. The only thing, if you were having cramps, that would actually maybe be a little useful. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. Uh, yeah, you maybe. like having pressure. Yeah, sometimes. So. Well, yeah, warm, familiar human pressure yeah. as opposed yeah. to the rigorous embrace of something that looks like wire. So the a rigorous embrace of the Napoleon of neurosis. Ew. <laughs> well, now I just want to scare. So apparently this compressor, it can postpone an attack, but it doesn't cancel it. So as long as you have it on, like, it stalls it. But when we take it off, then your attack happens somehow strangely. And as nasty as this thing seems, you and many of the other hysterics in the hospital actually develop a certain familiarity with it and even come to request it at times. And the author, Hustved, that we're quoting from here, describes it this way. Uh, She says, or she describes an anecdote. Uh, She says, one day in the early fall, of 1879, Blanche felt the usual phenomena of an aura that signaled an attack was coming on. She called it an aura, or maybe Hmm. the doctors did, I'm not sure. 
Um, either way, they called it an aura, this sensation that yeah. you have, not seeing things, but... Well, did it involve sort of like migraine tunnel vision or seeing... Uh, not that I could find, but okay. I wouldn't be surprised. So anyway, the aura, that signal and attack was coming on. Pain in her left ovarian region, the famous globus hystericus, um, which was a sensation of a ball rising up in the throat felt by most of the salt patriarch's hysterics. Hmm. Which actually does link up a little bit with the idea of um, the wandering uterus where you felt compression, you couldn't sure. breathe. Mm -hmm. Just not caused by a wandering uterus, obviously. Other parts of the aura were heart palpitations, visual and oral disturbances. There you go. Oh, God, okay. snake. Intestinal rumbles and uh -huh. fluctuations between extreme pallor and flushness. Along with these physical sensations, Blanche would also experience bizarre mood swings in which she would laugh one minute and cry the next. But, and here's the interesting part, not wanting to miss out on a session of physical education taking place in the hospital gymnasium, she asked for the ovary compressor. <laughs> to go work out. <laughs> to go right. to PE class. Yeah. Okay, yeah. she is crazy. <laughs> After her request was granted, she was able to participate in the class, even with the bulky compressor attached. Once the class was over, she returned to her bed, removed the compressor, and her attack And began. just had a fit. Okay. Well, it's time to go crazy now. Yeah. I don't, yes, I don't know. I don't know how this actually, I mean, obviously it's real symptoms that mm -hmm. the person is experiencing, but you could imagine them being kind of trained to experience those symptoms in almost Pavlovian kind of yeah, way or something. Yeah, by conditioning without the doctors realizing that's what they're doing. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know. So, so anyway. You become very much the star of the show, Yay! the Queen of Hysterics, yeah. and you do not mind the tension at all. Oh, wow. <laughs> you are even known to get jealous if other hysterics are brought out before you in the show. I convulse like a star, baby. <laughs> <laughs> now, hypnotizability is, according to Charcot, peculiar to hysterics. Only a hysteric can be hypnotized. Hmm, so really? if he's able to hypnotize you, it's proof that you are, in fact, correctly diagnosed as a hysteric so in his book. If you are the the outliers that, who are not suffering from hysteria, you can never be hypnotized. Um, according to him? Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's how he divided it up. Other people was like, no, that's, that's bullshit because you can hypnotize anybody. Well, not anybody. Which is not but, actually true. But I both mean, men and women. Yeah. But both men and women, that's what I should have said. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but Charcot was like, well, yeah, you can do men too. He was one of those who believed men could also be hysterical. He just thought those men are hysterical. Right. Yeah. And I think it's still generally accepted susceptibility to hypnosis is a kind of firm trait that some people have and some people some, don't. Yeah, some so, people aren't susceptible. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So according to him, if you're hysteric, you can be hypnotized. And he does this a lot to you. He and his students perform innumerable experiments and demonstrations on you under hypnosis, many of them just to show the extent of the control that they have over you at when you're hypnotized. You're told that you smell rose water when they've actually given you a glass of ammonia. Well, that's a dick move. <laughs> it is. Yeah. You could collapse a person's lungs that way. Yeah. You're told that you're eating sweets when you're really eating a sour lemon. <laughs> of course, they're giving you lemon heads, so... <laughs> <laughs> You are told that there are rats and snakes at your feet, and you scream and pull up your skirt in disgust. <laughs> mm -hmm. And the author Husved even says that uh, the doctors report making the paralyzed walk, the deaf hear, and the blind see. Interestingly, late in life, Charcot starts to believe in the efficacy of faith healing, partly uh, based on this, like giving it this kind of like medical explanation, sure. um, interpreting it as the effects of auto-suggestion. But a lot of the hypnotic experiments that they do on you mm -hmm. hardly seem motivated by pure scientific discovery. It sounds a lot like party tricks. It does. Mm -hmm. Well, listen to this. So once when Charcot and his students are gathered in the laboratory, you, Blanche, happen to stop by. Mm -hmm. And Tourette, one of his students, relates what happened next. So Tourette's actually writing here. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> yeah, yeah. It wasn't him that was. Yeah, yeah. It was his hey, patients. He had, yeah. had, had patients too. Right, right. <laughs> okay. So anyway, he records this incident. So we're getting a quote directly from Doctor Tourette. 
um, she had barely crossed the threshold when we put her into a cataleptic state with the bang of a gong. So they're just like, here she comes. Pong. <laughs> hey guys, what's up? <laughs> From that moment on, she belonged to us. Oh. And then they ask where you are, and when you say, why, in the laboratory, of course, they tell you that you are actually in the countryside of the Bois de Bouillon, a uh, forest of bologna? Bologna forest. Yeah, it's sort of a big park on the outskirts of Paris. Okay, all right. Um, sitting under a bower, enjoying the scenery, you then relish the country air and express you were beginning to get bored at the Salpetri air. I imagine I would, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Another time, different incident, the doctors hypnotize you and tell you it's unbearably hot out and you should all undress and take a bath together. Is this a thing that people would normally do? I mean, is it a frame I don't of think reference? so. No. I mean, taking baths together, I don't think uh, it would be. Well, okay, so Tourette describes your reaction. He says, she did not seem very convinced, yet she began to remove her blouse. However, when it came to taking off her corset, her entire body stiffened, and we barely had time to intervene in order to avoid an attack of hysteria, which in her case always begins in this fashion. Hmm. So we that should... can happen when you're hypnotized, even. Oh, yes. Yeah. Interesting. Um, we should add that W is quite modest. Obviously, it is for this reason that an almost unconscious revolt manifested itself, ending in the above result for, in the same circumstances, Sarah R., which is another hysteric, would not hesitate to remove all of her clothes and take an imaginary bath. And then we were <laughs> reprimanded. The end. <laughs> so he's, he's, he's talking trash about, uh, he's giving gossip on Sarah here. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah will take it all off. But I thought, I thought that was kind of interesting because hypnosis here is kind of like charm person in Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, where you can't make people do what that's against their nature to do. <laughs> uh, okay, so anyway, at still another time, while you were in a state of somnambulism, which is the third stage of mm -hmm. the hypnosis, according to him, the doctors hold up a picture and say, look, here's your portrait. You are stark naked. <gasps> yeah. But in reality, it's a picture of some donkeys in the Pyrenees. Well, that was obviously an earlier incarnation. <laughs> but long after the session is over, you still see yourself naked in that photo. And every time they show it to you, you see that. Um, and interns often hold up the photo and tease you with it. And eventually, you get so mad that you grab it and smash it to the floor. But two other copies had already been made, and even a year later, you still saw yourself naked in it. So it's, the, it's not just the physical reproduction of this particular photo, it's the photo and all of its... I guess it's, it's your image, mind right? associating yeah. with the image and then overlaying in your vision like what they told you that you see there. Yeah, so you can see how this is like getting to be a real Manchurian candidate kind yeah. of hypnosis here. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Gosh. Um, the doctors also experiment with manipulating your body. Because my mind is not enough, clearly. No. I mean, his, in, their, in, in these doctors at this time, it's, it's one and the same. Mm. It's very materialist, sure. especially for Charcot. A visiting American physician, W.J. Morton, describes this during a phase of the hysteric attack called catalepsy which in this case is brought on unintentionally under hypnosis. So this American doctor writes, The patient may be molded at will like a waxen figure if the arm is raised to a right angle with the body and remains so. And Nick is molding her at this moment as we speak. <laughs> if the leg is placed in a similar position, it does not fall. Okay, this, this There's is the leg. Ow. The patient is totally anesthetic, whether so previously or not. She makes no response to questions, nor in any way gives any sign of being in communication with the outside world. The eyes are wide open. Mm -hmm. And then the doctors proceed to demonstrate your anesthesia. And have a look at this picture. I have a feeling I'm not going to like this mm. picture. Oh, oh, God. Okay. That looks... Okay, so to describe the picture, it's uh, illustration... Seems like to a be, yeah, some sort of okay. Uh, a gentleman who's uh, I'm assuming Charcot looks like is poking. No, it doesn't look like Napoleon. Is poking what looks like a steel needle all the way through the arm of what I'm assuming is Blanche, who's looking on like with a benign sort of interested sort smile. Sort of half smile. Yeah. Yeah. Also doesn't look exactly like Blanche, but what the hell? Okay. Uh, I would have thought so. So then you get sepsis and die. I'm guessing. I yeah. I don't know. Yeah, this might not be of Blanche, but this was what they would do. They would poke a needle 
it all the way through for the demonst demonstratory purposes that they literally don't feel it. Yeah. Look, see, needles can go through ladies. Hypothesis proved. <laughs> well, one of the symptoms that patients would often come in with is they can't feel anything on one side of their body. Sure. Mm. And so he's saying, look, I can produce this with hypnosis. And I can also take it away with hypnosis. So, well, yeah. Like that. yeah. So, yeah. Um, basically, you are treated like a, a waxen doll, like a Barbie doll mm. that they can just manipulate at their will. Yeah. You can do my hair and dress me anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Hello, Barbie. Let's go party. Oh, 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 it's hot. <laughs> All right. Well, there's a whole lot more that we could say about Blanche, but let's move on to Genevieve, the Saint Hysteric. So, Nick, you are Genevieve. Genevieve says hysteric. Or Genevieve, I think, is something like that. Okay, something like that. Yeah. Okay, so I have a picture of her. I'm cute. Okay. So she looks... To me, she looks almost like a nun in well, the picture. Wearing, she's veiled. Veiled. And, yeah, looking down, looking sort of sad. Kind hands of melancholy. Up her, yeah, yeah. Hands up in her lap. Mm -hmm. It's more sort of gaunt and mm. wearing black crepe veil mm -hmm. over her head. Mm -hmm. Okay, so for your beginnings, you're born in the village of Lodon? L-O-U-D-U-N? Which has an interesting history regarding... Um, Stories of, okay, we're getting to that? Yes. Okay. Yes. <sighs> You're born in this village in 1843, where two centuries earlier, a convent had experienced a bout of demonic possession, yep. quote-unquote. Famous book about by Aldous Huxley, of great New World fame. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, Jean de Zange, I think, was the famous possessed nun mm -hmm. from the time, I think. So you're from that village, so you've got that cultural memory, right? Right. All right, so, but you are abandoned by your mother as an infant in a tour, which was this kind of Lazy Susan-style baby hatch that existed at the time. It was meant to be to prevent women from just leaving babies out anywhere to expose them when they didn't want them. So you would have, like, a, a hole in the wall of a hospital or something or, where the mother could anonymously open this door to the hole in the wall, place the baby in there, and it would it would rotate the thing. That's why mm -hmm. it's like a lazy sure. season, right? Close it, and then the people in the hospital would find it and take so care of the baby. After hours baby depository. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This one they never fill out the slip. <laughs> so you're one of these babies left okay. in left in a lazy Susan like this. So you're you have foster parents but they reject you. They they blame oh. you for being scatterbrained and an unruly child. You're eventually rejected by four different foster families. Oh. Yeah. Um, at age 14, you fall in love with a boy named Camille, and you mm -hmm. get engaged, but he dies of cerebral fever. 14? Yep. You're engaged at 14? Yeah. Well, you can get engaged at that age. Yeah, yeah. that doesn't mean you... Yeah. At the funeral, you try to throw yourself into the grave, and you have to be held back, and then you collapse into a unconsciousness for 24 hours. Okay. Yeah. Or at least that's the story that you end up telling the doctors at the Salpetriere, because that's where all this pretty much comes sure, from. Coming through. Yeah. You spend a long time in silent mourning, refusing to eat, broken only by fits of rage, and then your current foster mother dies, and your foster father sends you to a hospital in Poitiers, uh, where you stay for a year. You're treated with hydrotherapy, which we saw last time. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, jet of water at the sensitive regions of a woman. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Involved, but in this case, it involved apparently cold showers and prolonged baths as long as six to eight hours. So you're pruny. So you're really pruny, right? I mean, you could get pneumonia from that. I don't understand how. Oh, I don't know. Um, there's no indication of whether this involved the stimulation to paroxysm, but could have been. I don't know. After that, you're too old for foster care, and you work as a laundress and then a maid. You suffer unwanted advances from your employer, so similar to Blanche. Right. Deeply religious, and you refuse him, but he manages to kiss you against your will. And at this time, you suffer your first major attack. Okay. Um, you have no memory of the event, but you wake up tired and bruised. But apparently in the middle of the night, you were flailing and screaming, and a physician had to be called who said that you had an attack of nerves. And then you return to the hospital in Poitiers. Uh, you continue to have these attacks every day for the next five to six months. Your belly swells, and you're told by the nuns at the hospital that you're pregnant. 
knowing you were abandoned yourself, they figure you have inherited your mother's degenerate qualities, which was an interesting current scientific idea at the time, mm -hmm. that you could inherit a personality quality, well, degenerate qualities like drunkenness and whatnot from, mm -hmm. you know, which, I don't know. Anyway, they persecute you for this, being like, it's your fault because you, your mother was, yeah. Right. When it comes time for you to move to the maternity ward, though, an exam shows you're actually not pregnant at all. I'm kind of figuring that. Yeah. Hmm. Um, the nuns then throw their hands up and basically just be like, okay, off to the loony bin with you and ship you off. So yeah. they think it's, is it, is it, was this like psychosomatic? She just sort of like... I imagine so. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So in the ward for the insane, the doctors administer to you belladonna pills as a narcotic. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, which we now know is, you know, poison, yeah. right? Also, <laughs> and it'll successfully put you to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. So in the right doses. Yeah. Make your eyes pretty. Yeah. Um, you secretly hoard them and save them up and then take 10 at once in a suicide attempt. Mm -hmm. Your vision blurs, you start to hallucinate, and you run through the ward. Somehow you manage to take 10 more pills, but the doctors catch you and purge the pills. They record the event only as unruly behavior. Damn. <laughs> and then, a few days later, <laughs> you use a... S no reading ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> You a few days later, you use a scissors to completely remove your left nipple. Mm, yeah, you feel no pain doing it. So there's the anesthesia. Mm -hmm. You escape from the hospital several more times, several months at a time, but you keep getting caught and brought back. You eventually, you know, get released. Eventually, this chain of events leads you to the Salpetriere. Sure. Yeah. At this point, it's 1864, you're 21 years old, and you come in clutching a crucifix. Okay. Okay. So, now, Genevieve at the Saltpatry Air. So enough trouble eventually that I just need to be sent to an expert in e all this weird stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From from experts to greater experts. Yeah. This guy's the leading neurologist in the world now. So your love for your lost Camille affects you throughout your entire stay here and your, your entire life. Um, you have hallucinations of him, his name comes up a lot, and the disjointed notes taken by the doctors of what you say during your fits. You come to be visited in the night, often several times per night, by someone you call Dr. X, who may or may not have been an actual doctor in the Salpetriere, or hmm. could have been a hallucination, but it totally could have been somebody actually taking advantage of you. Sure. And you come to believe that this Dr. X is, in fact, your lost Camille. Aha. You believe he didn't die, but faked his death in order to not be tied down to a sick woman at a young age. This is getting a little bit like a soap opera. Mm-hmm. You have love trysts frequently, and often several times at night. But here's the thing. According to you, at least, this Dr. X is married. And it causes you immense guilt. Sure. Mm-hmm. You write a letter to this Dr. X's wife. And this is pretty much the only instance that I could find where we actually get the words from the patients themselves. Sure, yeah, they actually wrote this letter. So this is uh, you, Genevieve, writing. You write, Madam, ah, oh, and this is written to his wife. Yeah. Right. Madam, ah, oh, Madam, can you ever forgive me? I am guilty when it comes to you. I'm going to confess everything to you. Remember that veiled woman that you saw coming out of your room on the night of August 15th? The one that you let pass by you? Well, that was me. And I know that you recognized me and that you let me go when you could have had me arrested for the vile creature that I am. But you have kept quiet, all the while being my rival. I cannot help but find in you a noble and generous heart to have had the courage to speak to me when you came to the ward. But don't you ever let him believe that this union is blessed. I will remain miserable for the rest of my life, since that is my destiny. And if after having poisoned my existence, he lets me live in peace, I would still be miserable, because what you saw in your bedroom, that is not all there is. Almost every night he comes to me, begging me until I give in. And if I don't want to, he bites me like the rabid dog that he is, and he drags me into the courtyard. Mm. You must have already realized as much because you have seen the freshly made and cruel bite marks, and those are not the first ones either. I have them all over my body. He has gone so far as to burn me with matches, 
And if you don't believe me, I can show you all of the scars. Wow. And it, apparently the, the hospital doctors would find her like in the morning in the courtyard all beat up like that. Sure. Um, not knowing like how she got that way, if she's self-inflicted or what. Yeah. Yeah. So well, there is no good answer here. Nope. Yeah. So meanwhile, at the same time that you have this midnight lover riddled with guilt kind of thing going on, you're also an extremely pious woman. And you behave in ways that remind the doctors of saints and ascetics. And Bourneville, who, remember, was an outspoken critic of religion, writes about you. Genevieve will walk in the courtyard in her chemise, which is like a shift, basically. Mm -hmm. um, under a downpour, she will walk on the rooftops and spend the night in the frigid cold. She will sit on a bench outdoors, her chemise under her arm, recalling point by point a famous possessed woman, the mother superior of the Ursulines of Lodun. Um, that's so the, yeah, yeah, from her, the village that you're from. Genevieve was also sporadically mute, which, as Boyneville pointed out, the church considered a sign of making a pact with the devil. Uh, however, he added, while the exorcists were powerless to break the silence, we have our ways to undo the pact, ovarian compression. So in other words, Bourneville has got this whole narrative going on where he's like, all that stuff that previously went under demonic possession, yeah, that was real, hysteria, but it but... was actually like this psychological condition that we are now able to treat. There's no metaphysics involved. We're just going to clamp those nuns' ovaries shut. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Sounds so much like a tagline at the end of a commercial or something, which we are now able to treat. Ovarian <laughs> compression. Ask your doctor. Ovarian yeah. compression. And then comes the long list of side effects. Right, yeah, yeah. With the, the nice pictures of happy nuns doing their, their <laughs> exactly. you know, vespers or something. Uh, <laughs> include yeah. catalepsy, somnambulism, <laughs> planking, anesthesia. Spontaneous planking. Cutting off your nipple with a scissors. Oh, waking God, waking up in a courtyard bedraggled. <laughs> and covered with bites. Oh my god, yeah. Okay, so um, you often starve yourself and vomit up whatever you're force-fed. Um, you also exhibit extraordinary behavior like scaling walls and rooftops, reportedly. This is starting to get like like a Hollywood movie almost. Mm, yeah. Now. Yeah. Tearing straitjackets to shreds, apparently. Jeez. I don't know how much of this I really believe, but, I mean, that's what's... Well, she was just tearing them to shreds. She wasn't in them. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, okay, maybe. Come on, just knock it off. <laughs> Quit tearing up our straight jackets. We'll need Jeez. those later. <laughs> so Charcot, Bourneville, and uh, the others eagerly record your behavior and propose that, like I said, all the saints have actually been just like you, and that you basically prove it. All those saints going up the top rooftops. Yeah. So, all right, let's move along here. Oh, here's an interesting one. So... This goes under the heading, you could say, of punishing Charcot. Mm. Because although you were completely under the you know, domination of the doctor, you also held what he needed. And so sometimes all of you would withhold your symptoms. Mm. Uh, this is quoted in Hustved. She says, in fact, when Genevieve wanted to punish Charcot, she would withhold her symptoms just as Augustine had refused to be hypnotized. Augustine being one of the others. On October 31st, 1878, Genevieve became extremely jealous of another patient who was providing wonderful symptoms and was therefore receiving more attention than she was. And this is 14 years after she was originally admitted, right? If it's 1878? Yeah. yeah I'll let you do the math there, yeah. Um, Genevieve caused some kind of unspecified trouble. As Bourneville recounted, Mr. Charcot strongly reprimand her, reprimanded her, she was deeply mortified. Under the influence of this intense emotion, her rachialgia, which is, I guess, a spinal affliction, huh. disappeared completely, and we were unable to provoke an attack. Really? Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, that gives you a sense of, that, that kind of sense of where, how psychosomatic, yeah, these symptoms are in some way or another. Because it seems like there's something definitely going on. But... Oh, yeah. It's definitely, like, real symptoms that the patients are experiencing but yet the source is in more than just you know like a sprained ankle would be yeah yeah definitely so that yeah that is pretty much genevieve so how do you guys feel having gone 
you know, hearing what your lives were like at the at this hospital. I mean, what is that? What what's going through your head, basically? Well, it's kind of weird realizing that even though they seem to have like symptoms early on, that the common themes were like abusive to unstable households, and mm -hmm. as far as we can tell, at least with Blanche, a family history that seemed to have a lot of weird neurological stuff. Mm -hmm. And obviously some extreme trauma. Oh god, yeah, PTSD all up yeah. in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can definitely see how the PTSD thing definitely, like, would have been real. It's just, that's not what they classed it at the time. They lumped it into this umbrella or waste paper basket diagnosis hysteria. Right, so, yeah. It's really depressing too <laughs> it's, yeah, it really, it's, it's really kind of chilling yeah. that to think what they were going through but at the same time what would the fate of these women have been before this hospital i'm not completely sure you probably would just be in one of those insane wars yeah you'd just be in a madhouse yeah it'd so be even worse off it's kind of sobering to realize this was pretty much the good option <laughs> yeah right yeah and especially in all of the Genevieve things, sounds so much like straight horror movie. Yeah. Right. Dragged out into a courtyard covered in bite marks and ripped yeah, up I mean, straight this jacket. Yeah, I mean, carry right here, you yeah. know? Yeah. Or weird shades of a combination of Dracula, yeah. Renfield oh. stuff, and, uh, yes. yeah, climbing the walls. Yeah. Yeah. And bad 70s urban legends of guys on PCP. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Yeah, so this is the kind of stuff that just maybe put down the book sometimes. Yeah. Just ugh. Could have done I can totally that understand. Part. The, the, the clipping the nipple. Yeah, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. I'm glad I guess she didn't feel pain. Yeah. Mm. Well, uh, we got to draw this to a close. We don't have time to talk about Augustine, but listeners, yeah, check out that movie. It's called Augustine, so it should be easy to find. Yeah, 2013 French film. So the last thing we should do is endings uh, for these this this motley assortment of characters that we have here. Um, so this is almost kind of like the um, the montage at the end of the movie of what yeah. happens to all these people. At the people. end of the fiasco. <laughs> or at the end of the game, the role-playing game fiasco. Yeah. Let's never make this into a fiasco. Yeah, let's not do this as fiasco. This would be too traumatizing. So anyway, um, what happened to the patients after they left the Saul Patriarch, what happened to the doctors? Some of the patients became professional somnambulists for stage magnetizers at carnivals. Oh, God. After leaving the hospital, after being discharged. Well, I mean, you've learned a skill. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You've learned a skill that if all of your previous horrible trauma is channeled in this direction, yeah, and then you can have a normal life except for that and make a living at it. And make a living at it, yeah. Trauma right. Trauma helps you grow, I guess. Yeah. So well, part of the point, it sounds kind of almost more like the trauma is being pruned into a shape right. and could grow in a bunch of ways. And right. it is pruned into this socially acceptable shape that you now have a role for. Exactly. I guess yeah. that's good-ish. Well. If you have no choice in it. It could be worse, at least. Well, yeah. yeah. So Dr. Tourette um, often went undercover at these carnivals to gather information about the people who get hypnotized there. Still perving. <laughs> Um, once he ran into a former patient of his named Jean, uh, who was one of these professional somnambulists now, and Hustvet relates this incident, drawing on Tourette. Uh, she says, remembering that she was highly suggestible, he jokingly told her, look, there's a man with a nose as long as a donkey. And she looked and gasped, actually seeing the long nose on the man he had pointed at. And then, but then she said, oh, leave me alone, she complained. I'm too tired. Every night I'm put under, and I no longer know what I'm doing or what I've become. I believe everything I'm told, and I do anything they want. I no longer know where I am. I don't have a shred of willpower left. I'm convinced I'll end up mad. So much for useful shaping of trauma. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. As for Charcot himself, he dies in 1893 of pulmonary edema, which is some kind of heart condition complication. Sounds like lungs holding water. Yeah, mm. that's an edema, right? Yeah, yeah. and pulmonary would be of the lungs. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, it, so it's a complication of the heart sure. condition. So yeah. yeah, it may very well be of the lungs. And then, like I said last time, he's immediately attacked and denounced and criticized by the rest of the medical community who just turn on him like a you know, pack of jackals with many of his students as well, except not Bourneville. Um, he maintains its loyalty, but nevertheless. Freud goes on to create his psychoanalytical theory of ego id 
Oedipus complex and all that kind of thing that we're familiar with, um, and becomes very interested in hysteria and but but interprets it interprets it in terms of like traumatic memories and right. things like that. Uh, Tourette, uh, who you know discovers Tourette's disease, is actually shot by a former patient motivated by revenge. Did he make mm. this person take off their clothes and send them into a state with a gong? It could have been. Because yeah. I would shoot his ass. Yeah. He survives the shooting, but eventually goes mad himself. Um, he develops paretic neurosyphilis. Ew. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And he's hospitalized and dies in his cell in 1904. Yeah, so, so not even that much later. Yeah. Binet, who uh, of the uh, Stanford Binet test, or IQ test, mm-hmm. Dies in 1911 from a stroke. Bourneville creates a special pediatric unit for epileptic and mentally disabled children focusing on humane treatment and education. Hmm. So he tries to do something with what he learned at the Salpetriere. Again, remains loyal to Charcot and doesn't turn against him. Um, but without his support, he bas- he's basically taken down by everybody else. Sure. And he dies in poverty at, in 1909. So the only vaguely nice person. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> All right, so what happened to the patients? So Blanche, Blanche, you suddenly and strangely lose your hysteric symptoms almost immediately after Charcot dies. Well, seriously. Mm. Yeah, yeah, they just go away. Huh. Charcot dies, oops, cured. (laughs) I'm cured, my life is over. Yeah, you never experience another convulsion, paralysis, or delirium. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you do with yourself? You remain at the hospital, no longer as a patient, but as a worker. You work in the radiology lab. Oh, that doesn't Um, sound good. No, and it was not. At the time, there was very little protection from the rays, and the the people, not just you, but everybody there, would test the machine using your own hand. Ah. Yes, and eventually you develop cancer and suffer a series of amputations. Eventually, from starting with the finger up to, like, the whole arm and then the other one. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you die in 1913. So, you know, if this had been a superhero thing, I would have gotten gamma radiation power or something. Yeah, but in this case, you really got shafted. God. Yeah. Sorry, Blanche. Yeah. Genevieve? You are released seven times over a period of 14 years during your, the course of your stay at the Salpetriere, but you never managed to stay out of the hospitals for longer than three years and nine months. You gave birth to a child in that time named Desiree while at the hospital. So who, something real is going, non-psychosomatic is going on. Something happens, yeah. yeah. The weirdest case of virgin birth imaginable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which you'd probably be on board with, yeah. Turns out we can repent this with a very compression. Oh, How, Jesus. However... However, um, the child is sent to a state institution and abandoned just like you were. The cycle repeats. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the father is unknown, but probably happened during a year when you ran away. So not according. necessarily. Well, the that's, what the, but... that's what the record is yeah. speculating, I guess. You escaped from a different hospital. Walk... At one point, you walked more than 400 miles from Toulouse to Paris. And later, you gave birth a second time to a baby girl. You kept this one, but it died at six weeks. Ultimately, we don't know what happened to you. Hustved couldn't find any trace of you after 1878. The hospital records show no further admittances or releases, nor do the hospital records document your death. The very last entry for you in the iconography, which was a uh, like a photo book published by the hospital, um, showing like the hysteric symptoms by photographs. The last entry for you was on Christmas Day, 1878, and says the visits uh, between Genevieve and Camille slash Mr. X continue. Sometimes they have violent quarrels. Sometimes they get along well. The frequency of their sexual relations has increased. She experiences more pleasure than she ever has with any other man. As for Camille, he claims that he has never had such intense climaxes as he does with her. So some strong encounters. Yes. Yes, you Which are strongly you... encountered by Doctor X. Hysteria. Meanwhile, is there any indication? I'm assuming not that the wife that she wrote to was a real person. Was it just she wrote this to? I know, right? And yeah. that was confiscated by the hospital. I assume is how we have the record. As far as anything that I read, no actual confirmation of hmm. that. It's left ambiguous as to whether, you know, in classic Hollywood style, as to whether it was all in your head or not. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's a little of what it was like for um, the patients diagnosed with hysteria in um, 
you know, the Belle Epoque period of France. So when is David Lynch going to pick this up? <laughs> sequel, <laughs> no, right. sequel to The Elephant Man. Well, yeah. it did get picked up by the Surrealists, Wait, especially uh, the Surrealist movement, like mm-hmm. Salvador yeah. Dali. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the big ones there was this author named André Breton. Yeah, oh, yeah. The, yeah. Sort of the Pope of Surrealism. Yeah. Yes. He fought with everybody. His main deal was excommunicating people and signing onto his manifesto. But <laughs> well, yeah, including this guy knows how he got his kicks. Including well, everyone who ever signed the manifesto. I like One, Marie. two, or three. I don't care about that anyway. <laughs> well, André Breton, Breton kind of got obsessed with this Augustine, who we didn't get to talk about, but that's the one who yeah. the... She was the really photogenic one, and um, she's the one who really comes out well in the iconography, that photo book I was talking about. And But by this time, it's almost like this kind of quaint thing, like, look this, look at this weird, crazy thing that happened, uh, you know, a couple decades ago, and ooh, let's be into this because we're edgy and we're surrealists. So by that time, it's almost not, it's already not really taken seriously. Right. That's the impression that I get. I'm interpreting heavily. Yeah. So it was sort of an affectation. And that would, would have been like post World War One era, I yeah. think. The surrealists. Yeah. 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 Well initially, yeah. 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 So uh any last thoughts? Wow. This is really weird. <laughs> it was, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. They, they they could make another they could make one final Hellraiser sequel, I think, oh, out of no, this. Yeah. Please no. <laughs> Oh, yeah, such sites to show you. Yeah, yeah. I could, I could definitely some cenob- see some cenobites from the Hellraiser dimension, kind of, you know, really getting in on the whole hysteria angle. Angels to some. Yeah. <laughs> oh. I uh, guess you really vivid visuals this episode. I'll yeah. tell you that, even yeah. without the pictures. Yeah, and there was a lot more that I couldn't even get into because yeah. of time. So wow. yeah, I think we need a content warning on this particular one. I think we Possibly should. for yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Extreme sex and violence. Yeah. Well, that's it for this episode, folks. Thanks, Nick and Anna, once again for being on the show. Thank you. Everybody, if you like this series, let us know. Write us in, uh, deadideaspod at gmail.com. Do you have a dead idea that you'd like us to explore? If so, we want to hear it, so write to us. I'm BT Newberg. This is Dead Ideas. Time to go compress some ovaries. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening, everybody. We've got a new portrait up. Angela and Jeremy as Mongolian royalty. That was a fun one to do. Check that out on our supporters page at deadideas.net. And remember, we will be moving the portraits to a Patreon model soon, but you can still get your portrait drawn for free in exchange for an honest review on iTunes, Stitcher, Facebook, or wherever. Just email us at deadideaspod at gmail.com with your choice of time period and culture and a photo we can work from. And once again, remember... We've got a huge holiday gift coming for you all in the new year. A monster-length epic series that's going to be bigger and badder than we've ever done before. We're really excited. I'm keeping the details secret for now, but suffice to say, we have really challenged ourselves with this one. So look forward to that in the new year. All right, see you next week, everybody.